Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with a requested movie. Yes, Sleepaway Camp from 1983. Its reputation precedes it a little bit, I think. (laughs) Yes, I agree. You did not like this movie. I did not like this movie. (laughs) I did not like this movie. I did not like it. However, I have a feeling I'll probably have more appreciation for it. At least the humor and the moment after this discussion. But right now, I really did not like it. It was difficult for me to get through. And mostly because of the acting. (laughs) Yeah, I think when you think about Sleepaway Camp, you have to think about it in a twofold way. You think about it in the sense that you have context from some of the actors and the director, and the only way that you can really enjoy this movie is this movie's not meant to be taken seriously. I think this movie has a lot of comparisons to Friday the 13th, just a little kookier and a little... (laughs) It's 80s in flavor, but also just, yes, some crazy acting choices, some well-placed line delivery. I get genuine laughs from certain moments of this movie. (laughs) But on the other side of that coin is this ending is very controversial, and it has a lot to say about transness in a not-so-great way, its implications, and the history that it carries with it, and how it plays into other tropes that can be not positive towards specifically trans women. So we do want to talk about this movie, and we're going to talk about it the regular way that we usually do, but I did write out some words just to start us off because we don't want to glorify what this movie might have had to say under the 80s reading of it, and we want people to kind of know the kind of discussion that we're going to be getting into once we get through the plot and get into our analysis bit. We know that there might be some elements or some discussions that folks might not want to hear, but we did want to discuss the movie because it does carry a lot of controversy, but we want to address it in the way that we normally do in an academic, but also conversational way. This movie is a divisive one in the horror community. It's heralded as a cult classic due to some of the comedic performances and iconic lines, but its cultural impact comes largely due to plot points that can be interpreted as transphobic. Although we are a podcast who likes to walk through the plot before revealing the ending, we find it important to reveal the ending ahead of time as not to glorify it. The plot twist in this movie is the reveal that our final girl has a penis, and this is inferred to be an explanation for some of her malicious actions in the film. Throughout the episode, we'll talk about differing interpretations of the character and what the movie has to say about gender identity, but we also recognize that this is a film that could be offensive to trans people and the people that love them. Neither Elise or I identify as trans women, but we have done our due diligence to gather our research from trans voices and will center our discussions around them. We do not endorse or support the idea of trans women's bodies being used as shock value or a plot device, but it is a trope that exists in the film that we feel that is important to discuss in order to dispel misconceptions and be active allies to our trans feminine friends and listeners. While there are many other things about this movie that I should say I enjoy, and that we look forward to discussing. We want to provide context and a content warning for discussions of transphobia, homophobia, and sexual assault. Okay, so we begin with our opening scene. We have a scary dramatic music playing over some scenic views of a camp that ultimately close on the camp sign, Camp Arawak, but with a for sale sign over it. So we know some business happened here, some shit went down. But then we get to the next scene, which is still part of the opening. There are two little kids, Angela and Peter. 
And they're on a little boat in a lake with their dad. Intercut with the scene of this little family, we have two, I guess, camp counselors or young teenagers, Craig and Marianne. I wrote, they are boring and not paying much attention. (laughs) I don't know why I said they were boring. I have no recollection of why I would have thought that. But they are taking their friend out water skiing and Marianne convinces Craig to let her drive. But I wrote, Marianne is not paying attention. She's very much embodying the stereotype that women cannot drive, which, damn it, Marianne, (laughs) we have been fighting to try to dispel this misconception. (laughs) She might be the reason that it exists. She is not looking. She doesn't give a fuck about where this boat goes. And it ends up hitting the father. And the kids, we don't know, we're not shown right away after their boat kind of had capsized into the water when the kids played a trick on the dad. So the dad is killed. We're not sure what's up with the kids. It's at least assumed that one kid died because you see a kid's life vest float from the bottom of the ocean up to the surface. And then we are jump-cutted to eight years later, where we are introduced to perhaps the wildest character (laughs) in this movie, Aunt Martha. She is so weird. Ricky and Angela. So Aunt Martha, I don't know. She gave me like Snow White vibes in terms of how she was dressed. Yes. Like her curls and her color scheme and her red lip and her dark hair. But she's acting on screen like almost like she's acting in a theater production where she'll say something to no one and then she'll turn and have an aside to herself and be like, (laughs) oh no, that will never do. It doesn't stop. Like, you could tell she's meant to be read as eccentric, but, like, this lady's delivery is crazy. Like, this is the first time she's ever, like, read lines in her life. I did write down Elise would do an amazing impression of her. Like, I feel like when you're, like, when you quote ridiculous women characters in film, like, your impression is how this woman just genuinely acts. (laughs) Yeah, it's, it's so weird, but yes. So Ricky and Angela both appear to be 13, 14-ish, and Aunt Martha is getting ready for them to go to Camp Arawak for the summer. It's revealed that Ricky's gone before, but this will be Angela's first time. Ricky is combative, Angela is quiet, and you get the context that Angela is Aunt Martha's niece, and Ricky is Aunt Martha's son. So Ricky and Angela are cousins. We also get context that Aunt Martha is a doctor who performed the physicals for Ricky and Angela to be able to go to camp, which doesn't seem very important, but it's kind of important to the plot twist later on. So buses arrive at camp and we are greeted with a gross cook and lots of short shorts. Oh my god, the short shorts. Also, as we're being introduced to the camp and kind of the cook staff, there are kids running. They are running around. I was like, do you remember the last time we were that excited for anything? I can't tell you the last time I ran anywhere. (laughs) These kids, like the whole time we meet the staff and they're having conversations, there's kids running everywhere. Like it's mayhem. But yes, the cooks, they're chatting and Artie is talking about he's very much looking forward to the young women he's going to see or young girls. He's quoted to say, no such thing as too young, just very overtly pedophilic, like not good. Yeah, he's horrible. And then short shorts is Ronnie. He is a nice camp counselor guy. He's wearing a lot of crop tops and jean jorts. And at one point, a royal blue mesh top. Yeah, he's giving like kind of Grady from Nightmare 2. Oh my god, who 
Do you know the movie Fifty First Dates? Oh yeah. Who the fuck is the is brother? His name Chet? No. I, I think it might be Chet or Chad. Chet or Chad. He, the brother in Fifty First Dates. That they are giving the same energy. I love spamming Reese. Yes, that's yeah. correct. That is yes. I've seen that movie a ridiculous amount of times. I don't know why. I don't know why. So this is where Ricky, the cousin, introduces Angela. She still has not said a word. She is very quiet. She's observing her surroundings. But Ricky, because he knows some of the other kids, has clearly been here before. And he introduces two campers. One is Judy, who we get the sense maybe Ricky had a fling with last summer. And the other is Paul, which I guess is Ricky's best camp friend. Yes, and Angela is played by Felissa Rose. I love Felissa Rose. I love following her on Instagram. (laughs) She's known primarily for her role in Sleepaway Camp. She was 13 when she played Angela. Oh my gosh. She's been in lots of indie horror, and she's going to be in Terrifier 2. We have not talked about Terrifier because I don't think we could ever cover it because it is so fucking violent. I think you would like- Oh, I'm not there. I think you would legitimately cancel this podcast. (laughs) But- She has a big presence in the horror community. She's always at horror conventions and she's been quoted as saying, I have not worked outside of the horror genre and I really don't think I want to. I love her. And then Judy is played by Karen Fields. Yeah. And Judy at first, you know, is coded to be a bitch, but I cut her some slack. I was like, look, Ricky is talking to her. He's assuming that he can just kind of like get back into her DMs, pick up where they left off. And she's saying, not so fast. Fine. But later she gets so much worse. She's very much an Elsa where she doesn't have a lot of redeeming qualities at all. Yeah, Elsa, not from Frozen, but from- Her too, no. (laughs) (laughs) I've actually never seen Frozen. But yeah, you're talking about, I know what she did last summer. Yeah, She makes Elsa look like a dream. At least Elsa can make intelligent insults. Judy is just, she's not quite there yet. Maybe when she's a little older, she needs a little bit more time to develop that sort of game. Well, I think it comes back to like, What you said prior to us recording where, like, all of these characters just seem to be flat. Like, they're one thing. They are. Because I would understand if if we got some characterization of Judy where she's actually insecure. Or she had been through some trauma. Or we even get a flashback of, like, Ricky being mean or something. Like, something to kind of give her just a little bit more than just being, like, she wants attention from older boys. And hates that Angela is getting a lot of attention, for better or worse. Mm -hmm. And that all the attention isn't on her. Like, it would make the movie a lot more dynamic but they really just stick her and meg who is this other very mean camp counselor into a very specific box where you're not rooting for them so when they spoiler alert eventually die you're kind of like yeah so ricky tries to get back into judy's good graces and this is where judy like delivers some of that monologue where she was just (laughs) like you're so last summer pretty much like (laughs) like says without saying (laughs) so then she like walks off from him and he goes well excuse me bitch Again, some of this line delivery is just very funny. And then we're getting context that in the same bunk are Angela, Judy, and counselor M.E.G. Meg. You notice how that's how she introduces herself? She's just like, the name's Meg. M.E.G. I'm your counselor. <laughs> so I literally wrote M.E.G. for her throughout my notes because I love M.E.G. Meg. Because she's just, <laughs> again, like horrible. She's just Judy like a couple years later. Mm-hmm. But she's just this camp counselor who's very frustrated that Angela won't conform to being like a normal girl at camp, a.k.a. like talking yes. and socializing. We get to see that Angela's getting a lot of shit just by, like, being herself and fading into the background. When, like, I don't know about you, but if someone's, like, shy 
and they don't want to be involved, you leave them alone, but that doesn't really piss you off. No. Where these girls just seem to be so mad that they can't get a reaction out of her. Yes, yeah. Which is not a good reason. It feels super shallow. But also, this reminds me of the John Mulaney bit in stand-up where he jokes about learning that his babysitter was only, like, three years older than him and it's, like, a horse watching a dog. Right. <laughs> That's, like, how old is Meg even? Like, she's a counselor. What is she, like, 15 instead of 14? The counselors look like they're at least 16 and then maybe these guys are, like, 14, 15. Like, they're, they're, they're right not there. much of a difference. I didn't know Meg was a counselor until, like, the last 20 minutes of the movie. <laughs> But there's also younger kids at the camp, too. Like, you can tell this camp does span from, like, the K to 9, 10, maybe. Mm -hmm, So, yeah, they're kind of, like, at the top of the camp food chain. Right. Oh, damn. Wow. They worked. They earned it. (laughs) So... We're in the mess hall, which is called the canteen. And a counselor talks to Angela about not eating her food. Oh, yeah, this is Ronnie. He's expressing genuine concern. Obviously, she hasn't eaten anything. So he walks her into the kitchen to see if maybe she can find something that she would like a little better in there with the help of the cooks. And I wrote, his shorts are the shortest I've ever seen. What a time for fashion. They are so, so short. Ronnie spares no expense. And this is something that I actually read about the movie where if you notice, you would expect the girls to be a little scantily clad, but it's the men that are are scantily clad in this Mm -hmm. movie. I'm telling you, we said it once, we'll say it twice, mesh shirt. Even like when Judy and Meg are in bathing suits, like they're one piece bathing suits. Mm -hmm. So it's like, it's very interesting how the men in this movie are sexualized. And Ronnie, by the way, is also like a bodybuilder. He's wearing like bodybuilder shirts and he's ripped, which I think makes the shirts look even tinier. The shorts. It makes the shorts and the shirts. Anyway, I mean, maybe I'm being unfair by like hanging on this topic for so long, but like it is just so different from what I'm used to seeing men wear. It's interesting, I guess, because that was very much the fashion. Ronnie is wearing like baby doll tees. (laughs) Like his nipples are just barely not there. And you just have to think about the reverse discourse Mm -hmm. of if a woman counselor was walking around in a sports bra with a bare torso and booty shorts, like what kind of messaging that would be sending where this guy like, yes, he's tan, he has chest hair, you spare no expense of what you're seeing on Ronnie. So it's both cool that men can be put in that hot and expendable kind of Mm -hmm. like eye candy, but to the same degree, it's like, damn. Yeah, I remember looking at those shorts and being like, if a woman was wearing those shorts, she'd probably be the one coated as a slut. But he is like the hot man wearing these clothes and he's coded as the good Samaritan. And even like, we could look at Susie. Susie's another camp counselor that we'll meet. She's super nice, just like Ronnie, but she's not wearing the same kind of clothes. I mean, she's just in like traditional shorts, t-shirt, tank top, summer situation, like like nothing super remarkable there. And it's like, I don't know. It's just kind of interesting how he gets to wear these outfits And still be the good Samaritan, the good one. Whereas I I don't think we would see that for a woman at this time. Okay, the counselor tries to help Angela find something to eat. And she meets who we know to be the perv, Artie, motherfucker. He takes her on a walk as Ricky, her cousin, realizes she's not in the canteen anymore and goes to look for her in the kitchen. So Ronnie is distracted now. He's talking to maybe one of the other cooks and Artie has kind of taken over walking Angela through the kitchen. And now Ricky is looking for Angela. So a bunch of different kind of things happening at once. Artie takes Angela into the walk-in 
very creepily. His tone is dripping with malintent. And right when he kind of tries to make a move on Angela, Ricky comes in and sees, freaks out, and kind of saves her and whisks her away. In this scene, we also get introduced to Mel. And Mel is the camp owner. Yes. He is just this old, crusty man. Yeah. He's giving me Sue Sylvester vibes from Glee. Okay. Um, Just uh-huh. a lot of track suits yes. and just like old crank energy. So Mel sees these kids running out of the mess hall and Artie literally comes out of the walk-in zipping his fly back up. Oh my and God. he's and, and Mel is unconcerned. I'm like, all right, you're fucking useless. Just another day. So then we get another cut to Artie cooking the world's largest pot of corn. It is the tallest pot of corn. It is like me size. It is. If you stood on a stovetop, you would be maybe as tall as the pot. The pot might be taller than The pot. (laughs) There was so much corn to be had. But like, you have to understand, you guys, like it is only the circumference of one burner. Like, it's just one burner, large, but tall. (laughs) It is so tall. (laughs) To the point that Artie needs to get on a step stool to put the corn in the boiling water. Mm-hmm. But then we're getting some interesting POV shots of someone sneaking into the kitchen and then sneaks up behind Artie as he's on the stool to yank the stool out from under him. And then there's this like struggle sequence of Artie like holding on to the edge of this pot of corn while this person tries to yank a stool out from under him. And, and I'm again, I'm like, just step off the fucking stool and let go of the boiling water. But <laughs> Artie won't. And he is pulled down and boiling water pours all over him. And we get a lot of lingering shots of him like looking at his arms and his face as his skin begins to bubble and blister and boil from all of the hot water. It's like a 10 gallon pot. Like, you know, like a 10 gallon hat. It's a 10 gallon pot. Yeah. Yeah. And when Shay says his skin boils and starts to blister from the water, like we watch that happen. And it's all cool practical effects where literally they put latex on this guy's skin and blew air into it so that it would look like it was bubbling. So I thought that was really cool. At least it not. Um, It looked, I mean, like it looked, I didn't think it was cool because it actually looked looked, good. Yes. And I did not like to look at it. So he gets put into an ambulance and sent off, presumably lives, which then leads to a lot of fucking plot holes because he saw who did this to him. He refers to this person as kid because Mm -hmm. it's like, kid, what are you doing? (laughs) And then Mel goes into his arc of we're going to hide all the bad things that happen because we can't afford any bad PR. So we're just going to pretend that he left and took another job. And I'm like, the kids would see the ambulance. No, because kids are fucking nosy. And like you're on a campground. That's another thing about this movie is none of the kids really are interested in the shit that starts happening, even though it continues to happen to their friends. Like this is another great example of a movie where no one reacts the right way. Correct. Here we are. (laughs) So Mel gaslights all the other cooks into not telling and they're like, okay, fine. Then we get to a way too long baseball scene. It lasts five ever. There's a lot of shit talk. (laughs) There's so many fades and dissolves to show that time has passed. But this is where we get Elise's favorite line of the movie. This is my favorite line. Okay, so Ricky is playing this baseball game. I think it's like the 14-year-olds against the 15-year-olds. That's the vibe I'm getting. Yeah, it's made to seem like the gap's actually a lot bigger than it actually is. Well, I mean, when you're 14 and 50, like, I feel like that's right around the time boys start to grow a lot. Like, 14, 15, 16. Like, I remember one summer my brother grew, like, five inches. So it's, like, (laughs) boys with chest hair and boys without chest hair. Yes. Like, and all it takes sometimes is just a year. Sometimes six months. 
So Ricky and his boys, the 14-year-olds, are playing against Bill and his boys, probably the 15-year-olds. And shit talk, like Shay said, Bill looks at Ricky and says, eat shit and die. Ricky looks back at Bill and says, eat shit and live, Bill. (laughs) Which is like, wow, that's a really good insult. The way he says it is so like pitying. Because it's like, you could tell Bill's actually pissed off. It's like, eat shit and die. (laughs) And Ricky looks back at him and is just like, eat shit and live, Bill. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Also, I said, why is Ricky so smooth? He's so good at insults. He's so good at this game. He's so calm, cool, and collected almost at all times until he gets upset and like righteous over his cousin Angela. He's 14. Like he shouldn't have this level of awareness. Do you know what I mean? So cut to the canteen again. It's another night at camp. And the older boys, the (laughs) 15-year-olds, decide that they're going to try to flirt with Angela. But Bill and Kenny... Was it Bill and Kenny? I know Kenny. It's, is just a boy. Ken- it's Kenny and some other dude. Yeah. They go up to Angela and they try to flirt with her, but she stays super mute. So they do not like that rejection. And they start teasing her. And right around this time, Ronnie steps in to defend Angela. And this is where we see the mess shirt. Okay. So it's like one of my favorite scenes. <laughs> and, and I think one of my favorite lines in the okay. movie. Because at first the boys are nice being like, hey, we're going to go skinny dipping. Would you like to come? And Angela, again, has not said a word throughout this movie yet and continues not to say a word. You know, they're trying to engage her. They're trying to provoke her. And she's just staring at them. Like, she's just kind of like, Mm-mm, no. Yeah, like, not it's gonna- not even like it's – she has such a good face to just look at somebody. Like, she doesn't have like an angry expression or like an annoyed expression. And it's not even like really blank. It's like the perfect face to like bounce their weird shit off of her and send it right back to them and just – I feel like they're just annoying themselves at this point. Like, she's just sending it all right back in their direction. Yeah, because it's not like a lights are on and no one's home kind of look. It's like, I'm I'm here. I'm home. And I'm not letting you in. (laughs) Ah, I'm going to make eye contact with you out the window and tell you that you can't come in. (laughs) But finally, Kenny gets fed up and in a very, like, New York accent just goes, Yo, Angela, how come you're so fucked up? Why is that so funny? Why is it so funny? Like, that's the thing. Because, like, he's grasping for (laughs) straws. Like, why are you so fucked up? That's not even, like, a really good insult. It's just kind of like the thing you, like, fling at someone when you're so flustered. It's so disarming. Like, I would laugh so fu- – if someone, like, said that to me in earnest, I'd laugh so fucking hard. And Angela, again, just keeps a straight fucking face. But Ricky – Ricky and Paul come in. Ricky's wearing a cowboy hat. He is feeling himself at this mixer. But then there's a boy brawl because he can tell that Angela's getting picked on – Then Paul decides to take his shot to talk to Angela because Paul has a crush on Angela. So Paul just starts talking at Angela for a while. And then we see Judy staring on with jealousy. Like you could tell that Judy wants Paul's attention for some reason, even though she's getting attention from all these other dudes, like she has a crush on Paul. But finally, Paul says goodnight and walks away from Angela. And Angela says her first line in the movie, 31 minutes in. Good night to Paul. And Paul takes this as a yes, I got the girl type of win, which is nice. Also, in this scene, Meg and Mel are flirting. Counselor Emmy G. Meg and Mel, owner of the camp, are flirting. That is correct. Gross! Yeah, Mel is like not cute. Mel is not cute. No, he's like Hugh Hefner looking ass. Yeah. I don't yeah, know. He actually really he does, does look, look like, like him. him. So that night, the older boys, the 15-year-old boys, <laughs> the 15-year-old, 
Um, they strip down super naked, which, you know, you can see their like pale butts running towards the lake. And it's so funny because their tan lines are all like up to their butts. Yeah, up to their butts, <laughs> because that's how they spend their days in these shorts. So I thought that was like a fun little moment. And so they run to the lake and they get in. They say something about like, where's Leslie, whatever. We cut to Leslie is in a canoe with Kenny. Okay, so kind of separate from his bros swimming around. You know, he's trying to spook Leslie about, oh, don't fall in the water. There's water snakes. You're going to get a water snake. And she's like, stop it, Kenny. Stop it. And then he tips the boat back and forth and then eventually tips it over. And right away, she's like, fuck this and swims back to shore. But he's under the boat now in the little like cave of the curve of the boat. And he keeps calling for her, which is also like she's very clearly swimming away. But I guess we're supposed to maybe get the sense that he can sense someone near that he thinks is her because shortly after that, someone does appear. I think it's just like when you're a little kid and you like put your face up to a fan and your voice sounds cool. Like he's just trying to like... (laughs) Because he's on the inside of a canoe, he's just like, Leslie, Leslie, Leslie. Like, I think he's just trying to, like... (laughs) Yeah, that's probably right. Yeah. Leslie, or maybe, like, doesn't think that she would just swim away so fast. Like, he thought he still had some entertaining to do. This is where logistically, like... Because a head does pop up and in the least frantic fashion drowns Kenny by just putting a hand gingerly on top of his head and pushing him down. (laughs) What does Kenny say when he sees the person, though? Isn't he like, what are you doing here? I think so. Yeah. Okay, so again, we have somebody who sees the killer. And yes, he dies really, really easily. That's probably the least aggressive death, I would say. Back on the shore, you know, Kenny's friends are calling for him and he's not responding. And they're like, okay, well, whatever. We'll just see him later, which is crazy. Like your friend is under the boat and hasn't gotten out of the water and you're just like, okay, bye. The next morning (laughs) scene just cracks me up (laughs) because there's Gene, who is the lifeguard. And he's just like going through the water and being so pissed that I guess the boys in their, you know, midnight escapades, like had taken the canoes and like the beach chairs out when it was low tide and now it's high tide. Mm. So he's he's just screaming. He's like, who the hell did this get out here? And he's throwing beach chairs and he's being all like angry. And then he flips a canoe over and finds Kenny's dead body with a water snake coming out of his mouth, which I thought was a very cool effect because it was a practical head. It doesn't look very real, but it's a practical head. And there's like it a was tiny, still spooky. tiny little water snake. And then Gene starts blowing a whistle like there's a fucking shark. Like, like that's how he calls for help. He just starts blowing a whistle and running down the beach as if he's, like, calling in a shark attack and not that there's, like, hey, come look over here. There's a fucking dead body in a canoe. He's just blowing this whistle and running. And I'm just like, this is so fucking funny. I would probably do the same thing. What's the protocol? Like, I don't know. <laughs> it doesn't seem like this camp has any protocol. That's, I don't that's know. That's fine. That, you're right. <laughs> So the police come now, you know, some discussion, an unusual death. This boy apparently could swim well, but okay, we'll write it off as an accident. I wrote, how is Mel talking law enforcement out of doing their job? (laughs) He's a smooth talker. Because again, this is time number two of, okay, something bad happened and we're going to pretend it didn't. (laughs) And we're not going to shut this camp down. Okay, moving on. So next scene, Judy and her gal pals are playing tennis with some other girls. And Paul is back around and approaches Angela and asks her to the movie that night that they're showing at the canteen. And she's like, don't we all have to go to that anyway? And he's like, yeah, but we could go together. And she's like, okay. And it's really cute. I thought that it was really cute. 
But Judy and her friends, of course, are witness to this. Judy is getting progressively more pissed. So is M.E.G. Meg. I love Judy's outfit. I can't remember what she was wearing. Side pony. Okay. Oh, Complete yes. side I pony. I remember that. Very aggressive. Pink sweetheart tea with her name on it. <gasps> she does have a Judy tea. She's going to remind you what her name is. But it's just the aggressive side mm-hmm. pony with just the shirt with her own name on it. <laughs> And then that's pretty much it. Like the scene cuts out. I think we're just seeing the rising tension between some of the girls and the budding relationship between Angela and Paul. So next scene, we cut to the canteen. The movie's over and everyone's leaving. And Paul walks Angela back to her bunk. He kisses her and then immediately is like, I hope you're not mad. Like he just kind of (laughs) like, I just wrote consent first, folks. Mm -hmm. And then he's like, can I do it again? Doesn't wait for an answer and then does it again. Yeah. Kind of cringy, very cringy. But you know, he's a little kid. It's 1983. Fine. Still innocent enough. But on his way away from the bunk, Judy sees him and starts trying to hit on him. But he's like, back off, Judy. He's not interested in her. The next day, Angela's sitting out from swimming in the lake. Paul's talking to her. Judy teases the two of them. And then M.E.G. Meg comes over and is like, come on, Angela, you're not going to swim. And again, is trying to elicit a reaction from her and Angela is not speaking. Angela is like looking through her, won't talk to her. And Meg fucking shakes the shit out of her. Yeah, she freaks out. Like grabs this girl by the shoulders and is fucking shaking her being like, talk to me, Angela. Like it's nuts. I don't know why she chose that method. (laughs) Ronnie puts a stop to it because Ronnie is the best man in this movie. Yeah, he is. Breaks up the fight. Back at the girl's cabin. This is the part of the movie where like Judy is never not being mean to Angela. And it's happening very frequently now. So back at the cabin, Judy's being mean to Angela again and teasing her for not reaching puberty and doing the whole like, oh, you're me, 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 me. Like the lip, the eyebrow, like, oh, you're just so sad. You don't have any hair down there. Like very condescending. Calls her queer. Yes maddening just like very maddening Susie is trying to stop judy because <laughs> judy's calling her for not showering calling her queer all this kind of stuff and judy goes she's a real carpenter's dream flat as a board and needs a good screw <laughs> hey judy that was actually a pretty good for you judy that like again the quotes <laughs> in this movie just get me oh my god but okay okay so Susie doesn't know what to do she slaps judy to get her to shut the fuck up and it works pretty well Judy really does just kind of quiet down and move away a little bit. And so ends that. Oh, next scene, the boys are having a water balloon fight. Where are they having a water balloon fight? Where do you... (laughs) Is it on the ground? No. Is it in the grass? Uh Uh-uh. Is it on the dock? Uh Uh-uh. Is it on a roof? It's on the roof. Oh, very casual water balloon fight on a fucking roof. How'd you get up there? How the fuck? And they are at ease on this roof. This is not their first time being on the roof. They're bobbing and weaving. Um, They're dodging water balloons. They are. So, of course, Angela's walking by and somebody throws a water balloon at her and it hits her and knocks her down. I guess if a water balloon is coming from that height. And they're plump balloons. You know, Ricky immediately leaps into action. He's yelling profanities, fuckers, cocksuckers, fucking pussies. He's got a mouth. So Mel comes over. He kind of breaks it up. You know, he gets the older boys off the roof and bans them from the canteen and Ricky 
from the canteen. So they're all involved in this verbal altercation. They're all banned from the canteen for a week because of their behavior. Mel's reasoning in this scene just (laughs) makes me laugh so hard because the entire time I wrote Mel, what? Because he's yelling at the older boys being like, you know how dangerous those things can be. You could have taken her eye out with a water balloon. (laughs) You weren't shooting archery. You weren't doing a fucking BB gun from a Christmas story. A water balloon would have taken her eye out. Okay, fine. And then when he turns around- I just thought of something. I'll have to bring it up later. Then he turns around to Ricky and bans him from the canteen, and he goes, and that goes for you, too, on account of your poopy mouth. (laughs) (laughs) He's just winging it. He is just winging it. I'm telling you, Mel doesn't know what's going on. He's just hoping that whatever he says sticks, and he doesn't have to think about it again. The dialogue of this movie just tickles me pink sometimes. Speaking of the dialogue, this is another one of my favorite parts. So after this moment, the boys go back to the cabin and they're about ready to go do whatever the fuck, eat dinner or whatever. And Billy, before he goes to join his friends, is like, wait a minute, I'll meet up with you. I just got to go take a wicked dump. (laughs) I kid you not, a wicked dump before dinner. But he's not alone. Uh Uh-oh, somebody slides like a broom handle in the bathroom stall handles to kind of like bar the door shut. And then from behind, through the window above the toilet that Billy is sitting on, we see a big knife come up, slice through the screen, and then a big hornet's nest, wasp nest, thrown through the window onto a pooping Billy. And he cannot get out of the stall. And he is stung to death. He is killed in Wicker Man style. Have you seen that movie? No, but is that the one with uh, Nick Cage? Not the bees! Not the bees! Not the bees! They show his body. This is another body shot of a very, very gruesome, gruesome scene. He is covered in, oh my God, it almost looks like bee tunnels. Like he himself, it's very unrealistic. But mm-hmm. again, might be a little more believable if they established that he was like allergic to fucking bees or something. Right. I just don't think that this is likely, especially because he could have just crawled out from under the bathroom stall. And if it wasn't clear... Billy was the one who threw the water balloon at Angela. Yes. So we're establishing a pattern here. Yes. If something bad happens to Angela, that person all of a sudden becomes hurt. Mel, again, cares more about PR than two kids dying on his watch. But he's beginning to get suspicious of Ricky because, again, he's beginning to notice that pattern that it's whenever something happens to Angela and who would be avenging Angela, Ricky would be. Mm -hmm. So, okay, sound reasoning, Mel. That's fine. Angela sneaks out to see Paul that night to go to the lake. And I wrote here, Angela seems wary of there being a killer on the loose and like scared. She seems to be paranoid of like, oh my God, there's somebody out here. What's going on? And like, I'll bring this up when it's revealed, but it's just like, is she aware of what she's doing? Hmm, that's interesting. So anyway, Paul and Angela make out very unenthusiastically. And while this is happening, like Paul is kind of kissing Angela's neck. She's not into it. Angela gets a flashback to watching her dad and his partner Lenny in bed together. So we met Lenny on the shore of the beach when their accident happened, but it wasn't clear what their relationship was. I just thought he was a bystander. But he was calling them by name. 
Okay, yeah. But it wasn't clear. It wasn't clear in that initial scene what Mm -hmm. their relationship was. But now we see images of Angela and Peter, who we presume to be dead Mm -hmm. because one of the kids died, watching their dad and another man in bed together and giggling at them, which is like, okay, how are we reading this? Are we reading it as, you know, seeing your parents be affectionate makes you giggle or the fact that he's with a man makes you giggle? Like, what is it? And then there's this very interesting spinning shot where Angela and Peter are like sitting across from each other on a bed and the shot keeps spinning and Peter is pointing at Angela. Oh, yes. And as kids, as, as children. Ki- as mm-hmm. kids, like back before when the accident happened. So we start to see this and this is what she's flashing back to. So like what's going on in her head? Why is this experience bringing her back to these things happening? It will be revealed, but very interesting that this is happening But this kind of makes Angela wake up and she screams no and runs away from Paul. So Mm -hmm. she's not into being physically intimate with him. So the next day, everybody plays capture the flag like nothing is wrong. Okay. Keep in mind, three people are dead now. So Paul and Angela chat again. He seems like he's getting more and more impatient with her because she's not ready to be intimate or physical. So... After their conversation, she kind of sulks away deeper into the woods, but Ricky catches up with her and is like, oh my God, I have the perfect plan to capture the other team's flag. Here's what we're going to do. You're going to distract them, whatever. So as they move into action, kind of spread out a bit in the forest, Ricky stumbles upon BFF Paul making out with Judy, his coveted lady. Oop. And as they kind of move apart from one another, we see that Angela from the other side of the clearing had seen what happened too. Oh no. Paul. Paul. I will say that Paul didn't seem into it. Like there's a line of dialogue where he's like, why are we even doing this anyway? Like you could tell that Judy had seen friction between Angela and Paul and then decided to swoop in, Mm -hmm. but it's still like he did it. Yeah, he did it. So later, Paul tries to talk to Angela by the lake, and she is back to her silence. So now she is giving him the I'm home look, but I will not answer the door. Judy comes back on the scene and is teasing Angela again, because this is her only characteristic. Form of entertainment. (laughs) This is like all she does. This is all she's here for. Then Meg joins in, decides to scoop Angela up, take her to the water, despite Angela's screaming and pleading, and throws her in. Along with this scene, we get a scene of Mel accusing Ricky of murder and like literally like holding him, being like, you killed him, I know you did, while Ricky is trying to like save his cousin from drowning who cannot swim and obviously has a lot of trauma surrounding water. Yes. Being how- Like even at this location, like is this the fucking location? Maybe. I don't know. It looks a lot like this could be the location that the boating accident happened at. Ricky breaks free and Jean the lifeguard get Angela- out of the water, Ricky leads her away as kids throw sand at her, which is like just mean. And also like it's just like it's the even littler kids. Mm-hmm. Like they're not even doing anything. They're just kind of like, oh, a person. Let me throw sand at her. Are they picking up on these other vibes? Like, I don't know. That sand ring thing was so strange to well, me. Well, they they also pay for it later. Mm. Yes, they do. So later on, some of the counselors get off for the night, and Meg is one of them. And Meg asks Mel to have dinner with her. Again, what the fuck is going on? This is what the weird age yeah, shit. It's weird. Don't like it. But Meg decides to go take a shower in a different cabin because the showers in their cabin are full. 
So she goes, starts taking a shower, and gets stabbed through the shower wall while scatting, is what I wrote. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, another pretty unbelievable death. I mean, this killer takes mad risks. Yeah. And is successful every time, but, like, they are not picking foolproof ways to murder somebody. So then that's it. She's left there in the shower. Oh, yeah. Oh, wait. The scene where then the hand reaches through and just rinses off the knife in, like, the shower head. I thought that was pretty cold. And shuts the water off. Yep. I was like, damn. Very (laughs) eco-conscious. Like, I will make people suffer, but not Mother Earth. (laughs) (laughs) So then a counselor and some kids are going into the wilderness to get ready to camp. This is a counselor we haven't seen too much, just kind of in passing. Maybe because he's usually with the little kids. So this is the first time we're really focusing on that group. Maybe like, I'm going to say like fourth or fifth graders. As they're getting set up, we cut back to the canteen. Paul begs Angela for forgiveness again. And she's like, meet me at the waterfront after the social. And he gets all excited thinking that maybe they're going to finally make out or touch boobs and like, or whatever. (laughs) So then back in the woods... It's later that night, a boy wakes up and begs the counselor, oh, counselor Eddie, his name is Eddie, to get back to the cabin because he is so cold. Another one wakes up and agrees. It's like, please, Eddie, like, take us back to the cabin. Eddie's like, okay, fine. And just leaves like three or four kids sleeping in sleeping bags while he drives the other ones back to the cabin. I think he was going to like load supplies into the car and figured, oh, those kids are sleeping. I'm just going to take a trip to the car and then come wake them up. Like, I'll take the kids that are awake to the car, heat the car up because they're cold. Mm -hmm. Not that it matters, but I think that's what the thought process was. Mm -hmm. I mean, either way, I mean, this whole thing is a campground. Like, even if he did leave to take those boys back. Like, who else is there? It's probably, like, five five minutes. Right. Like, he really wouldn't be gone long at all. But it seems like somebody is watching. We get a POV shot through the trees. So we kind of are getting queued up that something bad's going to happen. So Mel goes looking for Meg because they were supposed to have a nice romantic dinner and she is nowhere to be found. Goes looking, eventually finds her body in the showers, which why would you go looking for her in the showers? Like send another girl in. And it's also the idea that like her body was propped amazingly up and then she only falls through the shower curtain once he's right there. Did that happen in Friday the 13th? Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of parallels with Friday the 13th with like the beginning is a water accident. Because because of teens that weren't paying attention. And then there's just a misdirect of who the killer is and people getting killed in very camp-like ways. (laughs) Yes. There's, yeah. Again, this came out in 83 and the original Friday the 13th came out in 1980. And you could tell that it took a lot from it and made it kooky. But Meg falls, Mel discovers, Mel has like a crazy monologue of like, I'm going to get him for what he did. And he's fully blaming Ricky at this point. He is on the Ricky train of Ricky is the killer. Then we get, okay, like this scene is pretty crazy. Also, I'm just going to give a content warning for like crazy sexual assault. Not that you see anything, but the content is just really nuts. So you saw scenes earlier with Judy having an older boy in her bunk and then the bunk guy just kind of denies her advances, isn't really interested and leaves. So then you get a scene of her curling her hair in the bunk by herself. And then the door opens up. And there's just like a hooded silhouette standing there. And Judy thinks like it was the guy who left earlier wanting to come back and maybe like, you know, have some hanky panky again. So she was like, well, what are you doing? Da da da. And then the person comes over, knocks her out, like just punches her in the face, knocks her out. And then you see through shadow puppets on the wall, which I thought was very like camp activity. Mm. Like the fact that like, that's like 
something people do at summer camp is do, you know, shadow puppetry. You see the killer pick up the hot curling iron and put it toward Judy's body. And then you hear Judy screaming and that her hands kind of like coming up in very like, you know, pained actions. And it is essentially inferred that Judy is raped with the hot curling iron and dies. That's the worst one, you guys. It's very reminiscent of the kill in Unfriended. I forget her name, where the hot curling iron is shoved down her throat. Yeah. And this obviously, yeah, has a lot to fucking say about, you know, the 80s and what promiscuous girls get. You know what I mean? And again, obviously, that's not a character judgment we're making, but it's a character judgment of what is this movie saying about sexually active girls and girls who entertain more than one sexual partner at a time or girls that are flirtatious, like... That kill is mean-spirited in every sense of the word. I mean, yeah, Meg gets stabbed. That sucks. Billy gets a fucking hornet's nest, and then Kenny gets water snakes. But to get assaulted with a hot curling iron, especially with how phallic it already looks, it's just, oh. Yeah, it's it's bad. Very bad. I'm glad that, unlike Unfriended, that it's more implied rather than overtly shown. Yeah, you only see, like, shadow puppet stuff, but you don't see, like, the act at all. Yeah. Okay. And then she's dumped under the bed. So this is when we, you know, we come back, the counselor returns, and the boys, then all the boys he left unattended are dead, right? So things are really, really picking up as far as these body counts go. Then back at the canteen, Ricky pops in quick, grabs dinner. He kind of makes mention that he wasn't feeling well. He was in his cabin kind of resting. So it's kind of like, oh, wait a minute. Like, you don't have an alibi? Like, were you away doing all of these awful things? But as he walks out, he's grabbed by Mel, who beats the shit out of him, which is like, Mel, you're not. I'm pretty sure even in 1983, He's Hulk smashing him. Yeah, he is like fucking, it's not good. And then Mel tries to like flee the scene because he just beat a kid. But as he gets to a clearing, he turns around and sees somebody is there holding a bow and arrow. And then he gets shot through the throat. Friday the 13th, someone dies like that. For a second, when we were talking about that line where Mel says something to Angela about you could lose an eye or something, I remembered the scene and I was like, oh my God, does he get shot through the eye? Oh, it would be good if he did. That would have been kind of cool. But no, it was the throat, Um, which will do. (laughs) It'll do. So now the counselors are gathered together as the police arrive. They have found Mel, I think, at this point. So they try to account for everyone, but they know that Angela and Judy are missing. Everyone else has been found. Yeah, so we get scenes of Paul and Angela meeting each other on the beach, and Angela says, let's go swimming. Oh my god. Which, oh no. We're getting we're getting evil vibes from Angela now. Yeah, very um, evil. So they find Ricky beaten and bloody, but alive. And then they find Meg in the shower. There isn't anybody really doing a final girl circuit. It's really the police. Yeah. So very interesting. Susie and Ronnie are looking about and they hear Angela humming. And they find Angela naked with Paul's head in her lap. And you can only really see Angela from the back at this point. And this is the scene that kind of takes a kooky movie and then makes it say a lot more about identity and motivation Mm -hmm. and is transphobic and all this kind of stuff. It's just kind of like a very tired now 
but used a lot during the time plot twist of they were a blank the entire time, which obviously we know is not how it is, but it was revealed. So through a flashback, Aunt Martha is talking to the kid that was saved from the boating accident. And it's the actual reveal that Angela did not survive, but Peter did. And Aunt Martha says, we already have a boy and another simply would not do. She says, a little girl would be so much nicer, don't you think so, Angela? Angela is such a lovely name. Why, I believe it means angel. I know you're going to like it. I know you're going to like that name, won't you, Peter? And then it's the reveal that the little boy survived the boating accident and Aunt Martha raised Peter as Angela and in a way abused Peter by forcing Angela to become Angela, essentially. So once that is revealed... Paul's head is revealed to be decapitated as Angela stands up and Angela stands naked, growling with her mouth agape. And there is full frontal nudity in this scene where there was a anatomically male actor standing with a mask of Felissa Rose's face on it. And Ronnie says a line, how can it be? She's a boy. And then there's just a lot of cacophonous music a freeze frame, it fades to green on Angela's very evil looking face, and that's the end of the movie. The way that Ronnie is literally looking at a child holding a severed head, and the first thing he says is, how can it be he's a boy? Aren't you focusing on the severed head? <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, also, and I said this to Shay before we recorded, I don't understand the choice of facial expression Yeah, on Angela's face. I do not understand it. It is so... So different from anything we had seen from her character for the whole movie, which maybe that's what they were aiming for. Like, this is finally where we see the killer, the, you know, the, the evil identity. So we have to have a new facial expression to go with it. But it also seems like the facial expression you make when you're like waiting for someone to get a joke. Like, and you're uh-huh. like, ah. oh my God. It was very uncomfortable. And the penis thing was the least uncomfortable part of it. It was the facial expression, the acting, also the way that like the flashback, the severed head, the reveal, like all of this happened in I think maybe like 40 seconds at the very end. And then that's it. That's what my major qualm about the movie is because, and we have a lot of academic like research to kind of guide us through this discussion of like, what the fuck is this movie saying? But in other horror movies where gender expression or gender identity is at play for the motivations of the killer, there tends to be a little more to that. Mm -hmm. Besides, yes, this 40-second montage, you have Angela characterized as, yes, she's bullied, and she's quiet and reserved, and she's doing all of these things. And then all of a sudden, it's just supposed to be this like flip of a coin and this kind of, oh, not only has Angela been the one killing all of these people as a revenge for bullying, but also it's scary because she has a penis. Again, what's the motivation behind that? Because then what is the implication of Angela being naked on the beach with Paul? Were they intimate? And this is why I said earlier when Angela was looking fearful around, like, is she aware that she's doing these things? Because sometimes in these trans allegories, they do this Jekyll and Hyde thing, very Mm. much like Norman Bates in Psycho Mm -hmm. or Bates Motel, which I think you watched a couple episodes with me in college. Mm -hmm. But this idea that, you know, in Norman Bates' case, Norman is Norman walking around, but then when mother takes over, Uh 
Norman doesn't remember it. So like, what is it about Angela's character? Where is it? Oh, okay. Whenever something sexual happens or whenever something happens to like intimidate her woman-ness, then this aggressive maleness gets to come out and kind of be this Jekyll and Hyde situation. And again, like, this is not like a frame of reference that I'm making up. This is a frame of reference that's come from film review and film criticism about trans representation in film generally, which again, we'll talk about. Okay, so now we're going to get into some research that I found around Sleepaway Camp. So like I said, the majority of the sources that I'm pulling from were written by trans women. And I don't think any of the sources I'm pulling from were written by cis people. So again, really tried to be intentional about some of the interpretations around this film and what it's saying, especially now that we're looking at it through a 2022 context. So I broke up some of the research that I found into, you know, what it's trying to say. And the first thing I wanted to address is why do we think the ending is scary? First of all, like, why is this supposed to be a bait and switch that's supposed to make people uncomfortable and terrify them? And this comes from an article called Blood, Bodies, and Binaries, Trans Women in Horror by Jenny Holtz. And they write, Trans women in horror are presented as abject beings or anything that is considered gross because it is outside of the self. Think of all the bodily fluids that suddenly become grotesque when they're no longer a part of the body. Blood, vomit, hair, etc. These things cross the boundary of self and not self because they are not human, only pieces of it. Trans bodies, not unlike intersex bodies, black and brown bodies, and disabled bodies, are abject due to their transgression of social boundaries. At their core, they are in opposition to the white, able-bodied, cisgender, heterosexual man who is the image of the default normative person in Western societies. Trans people challenge the comfortable boundaries of society by way of crossing gendered lines and sometimes sitting between or outside of them depending on hormones, surgery, and gender expression. In a society that strictly constructs two genders, people who disrupt that binary are viewed as abject beings. Horror capitalizes on this fear with its depiction of transgender characters, specifically the murderous trans woman trope. Horror movies provide a vehicle for viewers to project their own struggles with fear, loss, and death, and to be able to engage with those feelings in a contained manner that is socially acceptable. By making trans women objects of fear, films like this reinforce harmful ideas about trans identity. In Sleepaway Camp, the now iconic twist ending is that the killer is Angela, one of the young children at the camp. Angela was assigned male at birth, and their abusive aunt forces them to dress as a girl. The reveal that Angela has a penis is the dramatic climax and is supposed to explain why they're a murderer. The film does not distinguish between child abuse and transness, leaving viewers with the message that trans people are only trans because they were abused. Mm -hmm. While it is true that many trans kids are abused as a result of their identity, they are not trans because they have been abused. Sleepaway Camp conflates the two, providing no alternative explanation for Angela's violence. Instead, Angela's killing is attributed to transness, and there are two sequels that solidify Angela as a trans woman who commits murders at campsites in their spare time. So I think that puts it succinctly as to what this ending is supposed to do to mainstream audiences who do not have a complex or interpersonal connection with transness generally, Mm -hmm. right? Like the idea that, oh, this is different and this is uncomfortable and I'm not used to seeing this, like that's supposed to make Angela non-human, essentially. 
I also feel like for modern audiences who many people obviously have different views on trans folks and queer identities and things like that, I feel like it remains uncomfortable because it lacks any kind of like background or context or story. Like it's not rooted in anything and it doesn't make any sense. So I feel like it remains uncomfortable, not for the same reasons, but because it lacks any kind of like storytelling foundation. It feels like it's just thrown into this movie. So that leads pretty well into like, what is trans representation in film and in horror specifically? So this bit comes from an article, Who's Afraid of the Big Bad Trans Woman on Horror and Trans Femininity? That's a really good title. Yeah, (laughs) by May Velveeta Rude. And she says, the movies that use trans people or people who cross-dress as a scare tactic don't bother to make a distinction between the two. Because of this, for many viewers of these movies, these characters have been their only pop culture reference points when a trans woman is mentioned. That means that when they hear that someone is a trans woman, they have a list of characters that are lumped into this general category of women who are really men, quote unquote, and that category is filled with psychopaths and serial killers. It could be easily argued that Norman Bates from Psycho and Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs are two of the most famous trans characters in all of pop culture. It's dehumanizing to realize that when you tell someone that you are transgender, there's a good chance that the first people that will pop into your mind is a villain from a horror movie. So then this idea is expanded upon in an article called How Can It Be She's a Boy, Trans Misogyny in Sleepaway Camp by Willa McClay. And she writes, Sleepaway Camp is a curtain-yanking picture with a reveal that works only to make a woman with a penis as a vessel for horror. It's a trap narrative rechristened in the structure of the slasher genre where, instead of a lover being revealed as the deceiver, a murderer is exposed to be a transgender woman. This harmful, false narrative furthers the notion that we are not who we say we are and that we are more prone to committing violence than of being victims of it ourselves. The film asks its viewers to build sympathy toward Angela, who has had a difficult life leading up to this summer at camp before transforming her into a monster in the final few frames. Like you said, like the final fucking like 60 seconds. (laughs) By making Angela a whipping post for constant teasing, she becomes the central character. In horror movie tropes, she is set up to be the final girl, someone you rally around when she is eventually confronted by an incarnation of evil. However, director Robert Hiltzik subverts this idea by making Angela not the victim, but the killer, and in what the movie suggests is a worse transgression, not a girl, but a boy. Sure, this surprise plot point separates Sleepaway Camp from countless other slasher films of its day, but more importantly, it is also its undoing. By venturing into the complicated gendered territory first explored by Hitchcock's fascination with violent queerness in Murder from 1930 and Psycho from 1960, the film portrays the transgender female body as monstrous and murderous. There is another insidious conflation to account for in the final sequences of the movie, and that is the equation of mental instability with having grown up in a gender not concurrent with your identity. Nearly every single transgender person grows up being raised in a gender role that does not fit, and that doesn't mean they are mentally ill or seriously violent. In the case of Peter, who would grow up to slowly evolve into Angela, this represents a false portrait of growing up transgender. While Peter to Angela is a forced transition, it mirrors an unintentional cis-sexist notion from parental figures that gender can be fixed. Cinematic representations of transgender people often relegate the transgender female bodies into three different modes. Ridicule, in examples such as Ace Ventura, Pet Detective. Sympathy through Death, Dallas Buyers Club. Or Fear, Dressed to Kill and Sleepaway Camp. 
All of these are toxic when presented with few alternatives. And while television shows like Orange is the New Black and Sense8 are working to give those bodies agency and more importantly, humanity, the trinity of ridicule, fatal sympathy, or fear remains the dominant characterization. When looking at a greater cultural whole, and if one is to assume that cinema humanizes through narrative, one can easily see why a steady diet of the previous modes of transgender storytelling make us, at best, sacrificial lambs. Hmm. Very interesting. That bit where this quote talks about these narratives framing trans folks as more likely to commit acts of violence rather than be on the receiving end is so interesting. Because statistically, trans folks are often at the end of ridicule or violence when media, especially, you know, we're working to change that, but like in past decades, painted the complete opposite picture. Yeah, exactly. Especially the idea that the most dangerous person in this camp is a trans woman and not the person who would be in most danger at this camp is a trans woman. Yes. Especially if you look at camp, it's a very gendered experience where, like, the boys go do this activity and Mm -hmm. the girls go do this activity. Especially at this camp with the children that we have seen. Judy, Meg, who borderline physically assaults Angela, Bill. There is so much, like, I'm going to say, like, negative physicality going on. And at the end, it turns out to be, like, this quiet girl, like, this quiet trans. It's like, what? doesn't make any sense with any of the way the other characters have been characterized and coded. You mean they're not the threat? Like all signs point to they're the ones that should be watched and disciplined because you can't go around treating people like that. I remember watching a podcast on trans representation in horror by the Dead Meat podcast, and they had brought on a trans woman to talk about like trans representation in horror. And I remember something she said along the lines of, this is something the Sleepaway Camp sequels do better, where Angela just so happens to be a trans woman who is also like a psychotic murderer, which is almost fun. Because it's the idea that like, you can be trans and have this character arc that isn't just all about your burgeoning identity yes. or that isn't about this thing. Like, you get to be the cool supervillain. Like, you get to be the Freddy Krueger in a sense. What Sleepaway Camp does, like, what the original does is make it, like, because yes, Angela was raised the way that she was or because of her transness, she is a killer, which isn't the case in which paints a very bad picture but this is something I think the sequels kind of do better to correct. So I'm going to read a little bit okay. about... Because also, when we're looking at the film and we're looking at Aunt Martha's little soliloquy, we come to think, is Angela trans? Yes. Because mm-hmm. they don't make a distinction between, okay, this is child abuse. Yeah, and that was my question Angela too. is actually trans, right? This comes from an article called Sleepaway Camp, The Elephant in the Room, Trapped by Gender by Alice Collins. And she writes, The movie is steeped in queerness, especially when compared to its contemporaries. In its day, it took a deeper look into the subject matter than that of other films. Angela and Peter's dad is a closeted gay man. There's forced gender bending, which is abuse rather than queerness, but people will still see it as such. And the majority of the scantily clad people in this film are men with those very short shorts that leave little to the imagination, (laughs) while there is little skin shown of the feminine variety. Hmm. I've seen people on message boards saying over and over that Angela is just a boy, but it's like they're ignoring the other elephant in the room. The sequels tell a very different story to their interpretation. Angela stays a woman, lives society as a woman. She uses 
uses feminine binary pronouns. Angela considers herself a woman. Going through therapy isn't going to enforce a gender of your choosing, but it'll bring out the true gender and force you to face the hard truths about yourself. So despite Aunt Martha being insane, she just so happened to stumble upon a person who was already a girl. Wow, that's very interesting. Because when you go into the sequel, you come to find out that Angela didn't go to jail. She went to therapy and got hormone treatment and affirmation surgery and everything like that. So there's five years between Sleepaway Camp and its sequel, I think. And And I guess she was also a kid. So she's not going to go to like jail. jail. But yeah, the sequels make her canonically trans. Okay. Of course, if you're just watching the first Sleepaway Camp, you're not going to have that context. No. But you do get context that she socially and medically transitions when she goes into the second one where she is just a camp counselor who then continues to kill people. Oh my, Angela. So that's where it's like, <laughs> oh that's where it's like the guest on the Dead Meat podcast was saying, like she was saying like, it's cool if you want to make a killer <laughs> or like a cool supervillain, a trans person, because in the sequels, she's just this person who loves camp so much. So she kills kids who like don't want to do camp activities. Oh my God, what the fuck? <laughs> wow. What a 180. What she a 180. loves camp. Exactly. She, she reclaimed that camp. Exactly. But <laughs> if you, again, if you just watch the ending of the first one, you're left with this, oh my God, this is just this person person who had a really fucked up past. This situation is so confusing, we don't even know what to do with this, right? So I also looked to see what Felissa Rose's take was. And Felissa Rose (laughs) is a cis woman who played Angela when she was 13. She did not play Angela in the sequels. Because really? there was five years between, and at the time they were making the sequels, Phyllis Rose was going to college, and she was like, oh, oh I'm in college, like, I can't, oh my God. like, I can't, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna take a hiatus from acting, and <laughs> yeah, so she did not play Angela in the second and third ones, but there is a fourth one where she comes back, I don't know. When asked if she thinks the filmmakers knew what they were doing or what the impact to the movie would be on trans culture, she said, zero, nothing. I wish I really knew. And that's why we're embarking on this documentary. Oh! So that I can sit with the director and get the real info. Because anytime I've spoken to him about it, I've sort of had to devise my own certain thoughts and beliefs. He has told me that he wrote a beginning and an end and then just filled it in with a baseball scene. <laughs> Which I love that she knows. <laughs> like that. That's so funny. <laughs> the longest baseball scene. I think he had no clue because it was just this mixture of the 80s and what he thought was an interesting story. Peter being trans was just Peter, but the bullying was what caused the murdering stuff. Oh. So her take was like, Angela killed people because they were bullying her, Uh not because she was raised the way that she was. They do keep that thread consistent. Like, nobody ends up dying who didn't mistreat her. That is true. So, like, as far as, like, a bullying revenge situation, like, that is consistent. The most slippery slope would be Paul. I mean, he did, like, he betrayed her. He betrayed her. Also, those little boys who kicked sand at her, I feel like also was kind of, like, a little bit of a slippery slope. Yeah. Like, I didn't even realize what happened. You had to remind me that they kicked sand at her. It was so... Right. It's very subtle. But I guess maybe in the wake of being dropped in the leak, like, maybe at that point, it was like, everyone's going down. And you also have to think, she's sitting on the sides and not really participating in anything. She like she knows everything that's going on. She knows exactly who everybody is. So that's she's not going to let that shit slide. That's freaking true. But as Felissa Rose mentioned, a documentary film series titled Angela, the official Sleepaway Camp documentary, is currently in pre-production with Felissa Rose as the executive producer. What? The documentary is meant to explore the franchise and how the social commentary has evolved since Sleepaway Camp's persistence as a cult classic for better or worse. 
So this movie is obviously something Felissa Rose is proud to have been involved in, but I think it's not lost on her that like reading this through a more widespread knowledge of trans identity and culture, what it's saying and what it could be saying. And I think she really wants to tackle that head on by being able to just be like, yeah, like, I don't necessarily think that Robert Hiltzik was seeking out to make a transphobic movie because he hates trans people. I think I can't speak for him, but I think he was obviously just thinking of, oh, wouldn't that be a nice bait and switch? Not necessarily realizing with the conglomeration of things like Silence of the Lambs and Psycho, what this is saying about identity and again, the kind of cultural memory that this is going to form for a lot of people because yeah, I remember watching Sounds of the Lambs for the first time and that perhaps being my first interpretation of anybody who was trans and being like, oh, well, Buffalo Bill kills people. Yeah. <laughs> Like, what the fuck, right? people is not good. (laughs) And especially, too, what the movie has to say about even queerness, like, that whole flashback with Angela and Peter's dad and Lenny and, like, the laughing and what what is that supposed to be saying? Yes. I'm really interested in, like, what he wanted to say. And, like, the idea that he didn't even really know what that was kind of rings true because there are so many parts of the movie that are like some parts of the movie are way too long and some parts of the movie that matter for the sake of like the story like are way too short it's kind of like he almost didn't even know how to say what he wanted to say because maybe he didn't even know what he wanted to say and he was really just looking for a shock factor i could see that being true I'm glad to hear that in the sequels that it seems like more effort was put into the story for I can't believe I'm saying this, but I feel like I'd actually be interested in seeing those Mm -hmm. despite me not really liking this movie because I feel like I'd be able to comprehend what's going on a little bit more and why. But it is kind of disappointing in a sense where like the idea that somebody could use themes like this and just be like, well, I'll just throw them in here. Like that seems like such a foreign concept to me, especially, you know, with like LGBTQ things. Like it is upsetting. Like, and I know it's 1983 and blah, 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 but like it kind of sucks that those themes used to just be kind of like thrown around and laid bare for people to, I don't know, like misjudge or anything negative like that. I mean, it's interesting too. It almost makes me appreciate Nightmare 2 a little bit more. Yeah. Because obviously Nightmare 2, like there is still some problematic things that come out of it, but still knowing that there was subtext to talk about the fear of identity Mm -hmm. and the fear of coming out and like the fear of, oh my God, I have a repressed sexuality type of situation. And that came out in 85, which was two years after this. So it's still the idea of using queerness as a plot point, but did it still have its bad implications? Yes. But like, to the same degree, did it use it in the storytelling in a way that was still authentic to a queer experience? And that's the thing, like, in all of these articles that I pulled from, most of the authors, if not all, identified themselves as trans women. And some of them did bring up, to some degree, looking at Angela, I see a lot of myself. Like, even in the way that Felissa Rose played her, where I forget which author, but one of them said something along the lines of, if you look, Angela's hands are always in her lap. Like, she's very conscious of, of, like, hiding her body Mm -hmm. and even just, like, being demure, not speaking very much, being afraid to, like, speak because she may be nervous about how her voice sounds. Especially oh if she's gosh, I didn't even think of that. nearing puberty and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So like 
and especially being in a very gendered space like summer camp. So like there was still an element of representation, at least in one of these cases that seemed to bring true to trans women watching this. And still to that degree, it's like me speaking as a queer person, I'm not trans, but speaking as a queer person, sometimes you have to have that conversation with yourself. Would you rather bad representation or no representation? And sometimes you can find those little pieces where it's like, oh, wow, this is showing me and they all die at the end. Or, oh, they're a murderer. Or, oh, this. But like, there's certain parts <laughs> along the way where you see yourself and you're like, oh, wow, like you could tell that person is me to some degree, even obviously if it's not you the whole way through. So I found that interesting where even just some of the way that Felissa Rose played her was true to life. And I, you know, I was happy to read that. I will say that for me, you know, being straight... I feel like when I look at examples of LGBTQ representation, like from the past and the present, like I feel like those are the conversations where I learn the most, especially when you have decades of films or novels or, you know, celebrities like laid out in front of you and you see, you know, the process and you see the changing and you see the conversation differ. Like I feel like those can be such illuminating moments. So like for my sake and my education, I, you know, talking about this movie and I knew this was going to happen. Like, I feel like I have more respect for it. And I feel like I have more of an appreciation for it because of the conversation surrounding it and the people who have spoken on it. And I do think it's cool that like trans women have watched it and have seen parts of themselves. Like it wasn't a complete wash. Like there were parts of it that were positive in terms of representation. And it wasn't just a complete mess. And I mean, it's still around. People are still talking about it. And I think what's cool about it is a big reason that it can get as critical of an eye as it's getting now is because better representation is here. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, they even said, like, Sensei, an amazing show. Orange New Black, amazing show, obviously have trans women playing trans women in those things. And you get to see these different movies coming out where like transness is represented and sometimes not even mentioned or transness is there, but it's not the focal point of the story. And transness is there, but it's not villainized. Because that's the thing, even growing up when I did as a queer person, you had to torrent these like weird lesbian movies and some of them were foreign and some of them were on like weird streaming services or they were in 15 parts on YouTube and you're watching these things and like you had to get to the end just to watch the lesbian couple die or for them to break up or for one of them to go to jail. And it's like one of those things. But now you can go on Netflix and there's an entire fucking category of like love Simons of the world and atypicals of the world and fucking heart stoppers. You know what I mean? Like there's so many other different types of representation that when you get representation in horror, it's not your only representation and it makes it so much more like, oh, okay, like this is almost allowed to exist because it's a part of this history. And because we have the truth of it now in so many other places, we can look at this as, oh, this was bad, but this also in a way formed enough public opinion to get us here. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And that's the thing. If you watch this movie and you're offended and you think that this can burn and it could be erased from history, like you're very much entitled to that opinion too. I could also get behind that opinion. Exactly. Like, (laughs) I don't think this movie obviously needs to exist in order for us to come to trans consciousness in film and media review. That's that's not what I'm saying. But just in terms of like, I'm almost glad it exists because it shows how far we've come. Yes. Yes. A marker. A marker in time. Now a part of context. A part of context. And we love context. And we... Fucking love context. So that was Sleepaway Camp. We We, did it. We did this because it was recommended to us. Yes. So if you have any requests or anything you'd love to hear us talk about, definitely feel free to email us at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. Or feel free to follow us on Instagram also at thehorrorspodcast. 
And until next time, we're the horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.